Hello and welcome to the West End News Podcast. I'm Tony Zelli, publisher and editor of the West End News, and today I'm joined by Wes Pelletier. Wes is a member of the Maine DSA and one of five leaders of their Campaign for a Livable Portland. The Campaign for a Livable Portland advocated for policy change regulating short-term rentals like Airbnb, tenants' rights and protections, and labor rights including increasing the minimum wage for all workers, including tipped and contracted workers. Wes, can you tell us um, a little bit about your organizing with DSA and your involvement in community organizing and politics in Maine? For sure. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, I got involved in DSA um, around 2018. You know, I was basically just lying awake at night, um, thinking about climate change and feeling like I needed to do something uh, and basically like Google around, how do I get involved? Um, and DSA came up. Um, and so I started just going to meetings and it was, you know, super interesting. Um, just like organized debates around, you know, should the chapter buy a button maker? And what does that mean for, you know, do we use uh, union labor to make buttons um, or not? And debating those principles and, and making those decisions democratically was super interesting. Um, so I, you know, they needed a secretary uh, that year um, and I became the secretary or was elected secretary um, in non-competitive election. Um, and then I've sort of just been in uh, leadership ever since um, and watching the chapter, you know, grow and become more statewide and take on, you know, bigger projects, bigger campaigns has been super fun and rewarding because, you know, it does, it, you get a real sense that you are doing something and you are actively trying to make change you want to see. Uh, so, yeah. And let's uh, dive into one of those recent campaigns. Um, uh, in fact, uh, the West End News podcast recently uh, looked into uh, Question D, which was on last November 2022's uh, Portland City Ballot. Um, question D was uh, an act to eliminate the sub-minimum wage um, and increase the minimum wage and strengthen protections for workers. It would have increased the minimum wage in the city of Portland to $18 an hour over three years. Um, Wes, could you give us a uh, brief overview of the history of the uh, campaign and also like um, what is the tip credit and how did this ballot question address the tip credit? For sure. So um, in 2020, um, we had a uh, the People Force Portland campaign to put forth um, Five referendum, five referenda, um, which were uh, Airbnb regulations, um, uh, the initial rent control um, uh, referendum, uh, facial surveillance ban, um, uh, raising the minimum wage, and uh, oh, the Green New Deal, um, which um, was uh, making sure that like affordable uh, housing was created and and putting some like labor regulations on on building in Portland. Um, so those all passed with the exception of Airbnb, which squeaked by, uh, or did not squeak by. Um, it was very close. Um, so this year, you know, we we knew for sure, you know, um, since rent control had passed, we had noticed some some uh, loopholes in it, and we can talk more about those later. Um, so we 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 knew we wanted to pass um, that, and on top of that, we were like, what is our bread and butter? Um, labor rights. Um, like these are the things that we as socialists believe in, um, you know, strong labor rights, um, you know, 
access to housing um, and affordable housing um, and the environment. Um, so we decided to, you know, figure out what are we going to run. Um, and we basically ended up with a, a slate of four, um, which is whittled down by five by membership. Um, one of the ones that didn't actually get in, um, which we proposed to membership was um, a basically just a lobbyist disclosure uh, regulation, but chapter membership thought that was a little bit in the weeds, so that did not pass. Um, and so we did not include in the campaign. Um, but yeah, so when we were crafting question, uh, question D, it was modeled in a lot of ways off of um, a, a regulation that passed in Maine statewide, um, and I believe 2016, um, but was later overturned by LePage. Um, and what that does is basically it gets rid of, you know, what the industry calls the tip credit, um, which is um, essentially a subsidi subsidy to restaurants um, or, or people that employ um, workers that make tips um, that basically says, you know, they don't have to pay, they don't have to pay the full minimum wage um, as long as tips make up the rest of it. Um, so what that means is essentially if you only make if you make seven bucks an hour and then you make seven bucks in tips for that hour and minimum wage is 14 bucks, then basically the tips you make subsidize the minimum wage. Um, especially during COVID, this was something that, you know, a lot of servers were seeing their, they were all of a sudden making the minimum wage when they had been making much more um, in tips. And this is because, um, because the minimum wage was, was because the tip credit existed in, in such a way um, that they could not rely on, um, you know, a consistent wage. Um, big part of it is we also wanted to raise the minimum wage again. Um, wages have not been keeping up with inflation. Um, and, you know, nationwide we're seeing corporations and and, and companies making these huge wages um, and that not being reflected in the wages of the, the workers. It's going into um, paying the higher ups, you know, these huge amounts of money, um, and that's not being passed on to the workers. Um, and it's becoming very, very hard to live in Portland. And that's why we call our campaign Livable Portland, because um, we are seeing so many of our friends and neighbors um, basically not be able to live in Portland anymore. Um, I think almost everyone knows someone who has had to move out of the city because they've been evicted and they can't find a new place, um, or they're just trying to, you know, their rent's being jacked up and they just aren't able to find a place to live and they aren't able to get a job that um, that pays them enough to be able to continue to live here. Um, and so part of our referendum was to raise the, the minimum wage to $18 an hour um, for everyone by um, 2025. So to do it incrementally um, and to also, also incrementally um, get rid of the tip credit to make sure that everyone was getting paid enough, um, uh, paid the minimum wage and that tips are being kept by workers. Um, so that's basically how it came about. And we wanted to make sure that gig workers, basically everyone that worked in Portland um, was making at least $18 an hour. Um, and that was, yeah, that was the goal. And uh, can you tell us a bit about, I mean, what was the campaign like once you actually uh, got it on the ballot and then you had to try to win it? For sure. Um, uh, how'd that go and, and, and uh, who, um, who else was involved? Yeah, um, so we knew we were going to be kicking the hornet's nest on this one. Um, 
we knew that Uber was going to get involved and we knew that the, the National Restaurant Association, the NRA, was going to um, get involved um, as well because this is this is a corporate or this is a, a pack that's owned by or, or, or run by, you know, the owners of Denny's, like these huge restaurants that pay workers a very low amount um, because of the tip credit and that benefits their bottom line greatly. Um, so we knew that there is entrenched um, support, especially in Portland, or, or entrenched opposition, um, in, especially in Portland. So um, that was something we knew about. And, you know, our calculations were, you know, we know we are fighting for a higher wage. All of the data shows that that getting rid of the sub-minimum wage for, for service workers either keeps wages the same, including tips, um, or raises them. You know, they've done this in seven other states, including places like Alaska and California and Nebraska. Um, and in all of these, tips have not gone down. You know, America has a tipping culture, and especially in a tourist town like Portland, no one's going to be looking up, oh, like, what does your server make before they tip? They're going to tip. Um, and, you know, we were we were perhaps overly reliant that the data that was going, that, that was there, people would see that and, um, and no, like, yes, this is for a better wage for the workers. Um, unfortunately, the, the National Restaurant Association has a, a very good machine um, and they were able to uh, find a couple of restaurant owners um, in Portland um, that would fight this and those restaurant owners you know, made sure that their staff turned out. So, um, you know, the they were very effective at, at using the press. The press was not a, the Press Herald was, a, uh, they put out a front page saying, you know, workers worried about Bill that will get rid of tips, uh, which is not what, like specifically the, the, the referendum says, this cannot affect tips, but it was on a front page. And that was the, the prevailing narrative. And, you know, they ran a correction three days later, you know, three pages back, but, that's on that's on coffee tables everywhere and people are saying oh we're getting rid of tips and some people might think that's good but that's not what we're trying to do um and so we we're combating that narrative basically the entire time um you know we were having to constantly repeat the the statistics and if you're finding yourself repeating statistics then you know you might be losing uh, a, a, a narrative battle they certainly did uh, spend a great deal on the opposition campaign. Um, I know I, uh, I, as a resident in Portland, received duplicate mailers, even <laughs> huge pieces of mail, um, the size of like a full sheet of paper, glossy, the full works. Two or three of the same one would arrive <laughs> at the same day at my house. Um, uh, they really messaged hard. Um, there was a lot of money in this campaign, uh, in the opposition campaign, um, between enough is enough, which was a chamber of commerce backed, um, pack that, um, I think altogether the opposition raised, um, just over a million dollars, which compared to ours, we we're raising about 20, we raised 20,000. Yeah. Which has, uh, traditionally, although less and less so as the years go on, uh, but there was a time where a $20,000 citywide campaign was a serious contender. Um, you know, people won at-large city council uh, seats with a budget like that 
easily even uh, not that long ago in Portland. Uh, so a uh, number like a million dollars is astronomical for this little city. Yeah, I, I we frankly, we were surprised in 2020 by our success. And I think the opposition was as well. Um, and over that time, they metastasized and they started to view us as more of a view the left in Portland and specifically DSA um, as more of a threat. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it's important. I think that it is that is reflective of more of basically the left success um, nationwide and locally that, you know, they are not messing around anymore. They know that we can win these things um, and they're going to spend as much money as possible driving the narrative. Um, and they're using it to various degrees, uh, to varying degrees of success. Um, enough is enough, you know, spent a lot of money um, with scare tactics about DSA and about Ethan Strimling, uh, who is on our on our board. Um, and I don't know how effective those are. I generally don't think people, you know, I don't think people care as much about uh, or are scared as of the idea of socialism as maybe they were um, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and the sort of the personal attacks, they just don't really, I don't think they, they have as much of an effect. That said, we only won one of the, you know, the three referendum items we were, we were pushing. So, um, it's sort of hard to untangle, you know, what, uh, what opposition was most effective. But I do think the fact that, um, the NRA had workers, um, from restaurants whose owners supported it, who are willing to say, oh yes, this is, this will devastate us. Um, I think that was effective and uh, maybe one of the most effective opposition tactics, um, maybe outside of the of the question A, um, which was uh, the other Airbnb. Oh, yes. Um, and you did, however, manage to meet restaurant workers who were, of course, for it as well. And um, uh, was how was a one fair wage uh, involved with this and in, in, in that uh, organization? Yeah, um, so One Fair Wage is a national campaign that is pushing for um, a raise or to to get rid of the tip credit um, across the country, um, and they've had a number of successful campaigns. At the same time as we were running our campaign, they were doing one in Washington D.C., um, which did win overwhelmingly. Um, and so they were they were considering putting something forward in, in Portland, and um, when they heard about that we were crafting ours, they said, "Oh, we like yours. We like yours." very much because it also raises uh it raises the minimum wage uh, it's more ambitious maybe than what they were going after um and so you know they decided to join forces and it was very helpful to have their allyship in this because dsa is not going to be courting um restaurant owners uh, it is just like not within our politics to be bosses essentially even if those bosses even if those restaurant owners are completely aligned with us you know at the end of the day we're always going to be a worker organization um so we're very worried of that one fair wage was able to make those connections um with you know the restaurant owners that were willing to put their neck out um which wasn't many because we were hearing anecdotally that um restaurants that were supportive would get calls from their distributors saying you cannot be for this, um, or we're not going to be able to just, like distribute alcohol to you, um, and that's anecdotal. But I think that there is this this culture um, where you know capital needs to protect its bottom line. If you step out of that, then the supply network is going to sort of 
crack down on you. Um, and that also goes for workers. We did talk to a lot of workers who um, were supportive of us or were confused because their employers were telling them certain things that just weren't true. Um, but I mean, extremely honestly, it, it is hard. DSA has struggled to effectively organize um, with restaurant workers just because um, the schedule, it's, it's hard to schedule meetings. We have a lot of meetings and um, and that's something that we're definitely, we have a, a strong eye on now. Um, we have a labor solidarity working group and you know, one of our, one of the problems that we are working on solving and are, and are actively figuring out is how can we make sure that, um, that service workers who have, um, who have much different schedules than, you know, non-service workers, how can you make sure that we are empowering them to like, um, that they have, they make sure that, that they feel represented and are able to speak, you know, for the chapter, um, and be less afraid of repercussions if they speak out, um, you know, against something their employer might be for. So ballot question D in the end um, was voted down, um, but I'd assume that uh, DSA is looking towards the future. Um, do you guys have any plans for fighting for labor rights or the minimum wage even again anytime in the future or how does that look? So our structure is set up, um, uh, basically we have these campaign committees that come up with the campaign, present them, present them to membership. Um, I'm, pro I'm probably going to be running for um, the statewide um, leadership. I've been on, that, been on the steering committee um, a number of times and um, you know I, I do wanna look at our, our statewide structure again and, and be involved in crafting that. So we're going to have a whole new campaign committee I think the general consensus might be um, take at least a year off, which has sort of been the pattern. Um, we we take we'll run something and then take a year or two to regroup um, and figure out where our next push is. Um, I do think you know city council is annoyed um, that we keep doing referenda, um, and we're running these referenda because frankly city council has been completely. Um, and it's been very disappointing to see, you know, a so-called progressive block get on, on the board and essentially, uh, essentially, you know, whether it is through actual because their hands are tied or it's just, you know, a lack of political will be able to, to run for the things that they said that they would run for. Um, and uh, District 2, I, I, I'm a big fan of our, of our um, counselor, uh, Tori Pelletier, um, no relation, um, but, you know, we need more organized and and um, and thoughtful and brave um, people on City Hall, um, and so that's something you know we're always thinking about, and we're, we like to talk to members of City Hall and make sure we're being heard. But um, at a certain point, you know, it is important to exercise these tools to make sure that the needs of Portlanders are getting addressed. I think a lot of folks, um, especially around Maine, but I think even here in Portland, uh, see our city council and a lot of our elected leaders is being uh, very progressive. Uh, there's the old saying that we're the people's Republic of Portland. I don't know if that still goes around much anymore, but um, uh, uh, would you agree with that, that we have a uh, progressive city council that's uh, pushing progressive initiatives like you often hear portrayed in, in mainstream media in the state? Um, I think the word progressive has become uh uh, basically neutered to the point of like not meaning much. Um, we have a city council that um, 
says a lot of things that they intend to do, um, but then does not have the votes to back them up. Um, and I do think a, a huge part of this is the fact that our city councilors are not paid almost anything. Um, essentially to run for city council, you need to have a nonprofit job um, or be a successful business owner or something like that um, because it pays, you know, I think it's like, I don't even know if it's seven grand. It's, it's very, very small. It's a very small amount of money. And the argument that, well, that makes it so there's no incentive to run for this. So people who run for it actually want to make change doesn't bear itself out. We will never have a server that is able to um, run for city council um, under our current system because it's just not tenable, especially with the meetings. Uh, but also with those wages, we're not going to have working class individuals representing us. Um, and I'm less interested in, you know, the vague idea of progressivism. Um, and I'm much more interested in what are the actual votes that they're taking. Um, we have a city that is not enforcing Many of the laws that we have voted for, um, we'll talk. I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit for rent control, but the city is not enforcing rent control. And that means that it's up to tenants to ask the city to step in when their rent has been unfairly um, raised or if they're living in unsafe, uh, unsafe conditions. And so far, and we've brought this up to city councilors and they say, well, please go to more meetings. And most people do not have time to go to meetings. Uh, we elected them to do their jobs and we elected them to do what they're saying. They said they would do on the campaign trail and generally speaking, they're not. Um, so I think it's incumbent on organizations like ours to make getting involved in Portland politics, understand, you know, we're not looking at, <laughs> we're not looking to like create animosity, but people need to understand, um, understand like, this job is not as hard as everyone says it is. Um, it is certainly stressful and lots of people are mad at you all the time, but um, it's not an excuse to say, well, this job is hard. That's why we can't um, fight for the working class um, because that's what you ran for. Um, so we want to make sure that people are engaged and see that for what it is um, and are pushing their elected representatives to do things. The West End News Podcast is produced by the West End News. Portland, Maine's free community news resource since 2001. The West End News is written by a team of volunteers and freelance journalists and is brought to you with support from local advertisers. If you are interested in advertising in print, online, or with our podcast, email thewestendnews at gmail.com. And if you enjoy reading community print news, it's easy to support us. The next time you need a product, service, or night out, visit one of our advertisers and tell them the West End News sent you. Uh, well, bringing up rent control, how about we uh, change gears here and discuss uh, what was question C um, on the last Portland ballot. Um, so question C was an act to protect tenants in Portland. And it ensured that tenants receive a 90-day notice for lease termination and or rent increases. And the passage of this question also eliminated the tax adjustment for landlords, uh, restricts deposits to one month of rent, and prohibits application fees. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe uh, talk a bit about how how you would explain the uh, success of Question C when many of the other progressive ballot issues that were pushed failed. Um, in fact, question C passed with about 55% of the vote, so a pretty strong showing even. 
Um, I'm wondering what you think it is about uh, the the rental protection, tenant protection issue that maybe spoke to people in Portland. Um, yeah, this is something we've definitely thought a lot about. Um, and, you know, a big message uh, that we that we were pushing and a big part of our our campaign was talking about affordability in Portland. Um, and we do a lot of door knocking and so many of the doors we knocked, um, especially older people, you know, their kids cannot afford to live in Portland. And so basically their families are getting spread out across the state, across the country. Um, and Portland's a great place to live if you can afford it. Um, and, you know, so we, we sent out the mailer and we had a, a mailer with a very sad um, stock image of a, a, a stock image of a very sad girl on it um, that said, you know, how can our kids afford to live here? And I think that messaging was very successful because it's true. Um, and I think that housing is the most directly resonant with that message. Um, I think short-term rentals, you know, I think there was the confusion about question A and B, which, um, you know, that's, that's a whole other issue. But a lot of homeowners like the idea of being able to rent out a rent out like a room in their house. And while our initiative would not have impacted that, um, I think that felt like, you know, I think it was harder to tie that to affordability. Um, and uh, alongside the opposition to question C or question D, um, you know, I think that was harder for people to tie to affordability, but it is so clear if you are looking for an apartment or if you are opening the newspaper, you are seeing that it is impossible to find housing. Um, it, you basically need to have connections. If you are a working class Portland in, Port in, in Portland, um, you are you need to know someone that is giving up their apartment. You need to have some sort of in to get an affordable place or you're paying, you know, 1600 bucks for a, a one bedroom or even a studio. Um, and it's, it's, it's very, very resonant with people from all, um, from all areas in their life. Um, and this was the one that outside of uh, district five, two, uh, which basically said no to everything. This passed. Um, and District 5-2 is kind of the uh, northern, more suburban yeah. area of the city. It is not friendly to our uh, our politics, generally speaking. And I think that's, you know, that's maybe a failure on our part and something we're thinking about, you know, how can we speak more to neighborhood needs, um, things like walkable cities, stuff like that. Um, but outside of that, um, you know, this passed and everything else, like, kind of got shellacked in a sort of surprising way. Um, so, you know, and this was always the, this was like the baby, or like this was the one we started the campaign with. And I, you know, I, I was one of the founding members of the Trelawney Tenant Union, um, which is, uh, which represents uh, tenants in apartment mart. Um, I was involved in Maine Renters United, which is right now, like currently in hiatus as we figure out, hiatus as we figure out, you know, how are we going to, what does organizing tents look like? Um, and this was the one that we needed to pass. And I would have been I would have been so sad if this one passed, uh, if this one didn't pass. I guess I would have been like, you know, I, I expected the Airbnb one to pass and I would have been happy that passed. Um, but rent control, like this is stuff that's impacting every single uh, person that's renting and 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 how is it doing that right um what what are the uh, changes is going to bring for sure so basically rent control um in that we passed in 2020 
it caps um, rent increases to 10% a year um, or 5% a year and 10% with certain other things. Um, so it was a complicated rollout because this was also the year, like inflation was rising and um, part of the, the calculation that um, we're, we're able to, or, or is in the allowable rent control, the rent raising is tying it to the rate of inflation. Um, so because rent, because inflation was skyrocketing, um, that also meant like rents could get tied to that. Um, and so those went up a little bit and that was a little confusing because we couldn't just tell people, oh, your rent can only go up 5%. There were other things to, to keep in mind. Um, it also formed the rent board, which is a citizen um, oversight board that basically it hears um, requests from landlords when they want to raise rent above, you know, the 5% allowable uh, for if they're, if they're making, you know, improvements, um, basically they can make an argument saying, I want to raise rent more. Um, and also here's complaints from tenants who have had, who are fighting that. Um, we have a office of housing safety that was um, established after the Noy street fire, which killed five people. Um, that was 2014. Um, and they are, they are tasked with a lot. Love that. Um, yeah, I have my it's complete coincidence. I have my <laughs> smiles for noise T-shirt on. It was a brief fundraiser to help some of the victims and their families. And I think that that incident was a huge eye opener for a lot of people. Um, and the Housing Safety Office they are understaffed and they are underfunded, though they have received much more funding. Um, but one thing we've dealt with is they are not prioritizing um, enforcing rent controls and. You know, we hear from so many tenants who are struggling with habitability issues and they're um, struggling with illegal rent raises. Um, and we have, it has been hard for us to figure out what do we tell them? Um, because if they go to the city, um, if they go to the housing safety office, uh, the housing safety office basically puts them at the bottom of a list and then alerts their landlord essentially, oh, a tenant is reaching out because of their because the rent's been illegally raised. Sometimes they name the tenant, and it puts the tenant in a very un, a precarious position. Um, and the correct answer is organize, uh, talk to your neighbors, uh, figure out you know how can you protect yourselves. Have a meeting, um, and just say, hey, let's write a letter to the landlord, or let's write a letter to the housing safety office um, as a body, as a as a tenant organization, which um, the question question C um, did create a provision that says uh, tenant organizations are able to represent all tenants. Um, whereas before the city decided to say, no, you're only representing the people who show up to the meeting or sign a letter, which is not not the intention of the original law and is now, uh, now the law. Um, we have this housing safety office that is not prioritizing tenant rights um, and is it is basically asking tenants who report individually to out themselves to their landlord as someone that might make trouble. And we hear a lot um, about tenants who are having their leases not renewed. This happened to um, the first official tenant union in Portland um, a couple of years back, which is the Bellport Tenant Union. Um, and they successfully fought an illegal rent increase. Um, and every single person um, who was involved had their leases not renewed um including a woman who you know uh 
is an older woman who is was basically homeless, like was living in, who had to move to a hotel because um, her housing was taken away by the landlord, by, by Belport. Um, and that's something that's just, it's not acceptable. And, and we, they, there has been news coming out because they have been more and more hostile to the idea of the fact that they need to be enforcing these. Um, and we need change. And this, we had hoped for question two to pass. Question two was the changes to the, the city manager position that would put it under the mayor. Because right now these, these officials who are the people who can make sure that rent is fair, um, they are not doing their jobs as far as we see and there is no oversight over them. And we need that to be an elected position. And question two did not pass. So we will not have that be um, accountable to an elected position. So right now we need to be pressuring city government um, and we need to be shedding a light on, on you know, these tenants that are being charged hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars over what they should be paying a year. Maybe their landlords don't know, maybe their landlords do know, but the fact that the city is not proactively sending out letters to tenants and landlords saying, this is what your rent should be because this is what you registered your unit as, um, like this is the maximum that your rent should be. If it's not, please reach out to us. Um, the fact that they're not proactively enforcing this stuff based on the data that they do have speaks to their understaffing and to their underfunding, surely but I think overall speaks to a lack of prioritization of the people living in Portland. And what it means is that the working class is being forced out of Portland because they're not being prioritized. And so rent control had existed in Portland for a brief period before the new ballot issue. Um, and it was basically landlords registered their units and said how much the rent was at the time, correct? And then ever since have been able to, for using various adjusters, increase that rent based on things like uh, inflation and I believe the uh, mill rate or the tax rate in the city. Um, and so with the new ballot measure um, that's passed, your organization is hoping that it's improved um, the, the rental board's ability to enforce and um, but also the tenant's ability, like you were saying, to um, to raise complaints um, and perhaps with less fear of retaliation. A big part of this is the ability for people to form tenant unions. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, for sure. I, tenant unions are my favorite thing um, because frankly, like <laughs> the community aspect is great. Um, to be able to live in a building and have a way we in the Trelawney building we have a discord and I you know when I lived there I was able to say hey can anyone watch my cat um and someone was able to watch my cat uh just that sense of community is so nice um and it's something that has we've sort of drifted away from in a lot of places you know you may know your neighbors but it's weird it it seems weird for a lot of people to like knock on your neighbor's door and ask for something um and the thing is a lot of us are excited to talk to our neighbors and it's weird to have to like to have your door knocked on and be like oh word like i guess we like live close together um but once you start building that community and it becomes less weird and you know the people you're walking by in the halls um it just completely changes the way you look at your home and the way that you look at your community and it reduces the amount of fear you know um 
you can feel pretty assured that, you know, there is no mystery about, oh, who's living next door? It could be an ax murder. Like, no, that's Frank. And like, he's kind of weird, but like, he's super nice and he makes a great lasagna. Um, and once you start building that community and then you start looking out for each other um, and it's important to be able to, to fight together, um, to have that community for the positive, but also for the ability to speak up to a landlord who right now in the state of Maine has so much power. Um, Maine has um, no cause evictions, which basically means that a landlord can kick you out for no reason. Um, this is something that's being fought by other DSA chapters in uh, places like New York. Um, and it's certainly something we're looking at um, because it is someone's home. Um, and a landlord can say, well, I want to make more profit on that um, and then just kick them out. And that's, you know, in our current view of things under, you know, our, our pretty well entrenched capital system, that's acceptable, right? That person is that person's property. They deserve to make more money if they want to. Um, and that's certainly how things are. Um, I don't think that's how things should be. Um, and I think that we deserve, you know, a government and a society that's willing to take steps to prevent that and to preserve people's homes. Um, and a lot of that means making more social housing, um, but it also means putting tenant protections in. And right now, you know, I don't really have much faith in our electoral system to get us there. And the only way it's going to get there is the same way that we're seeing um, labor rights start to take um, a, a, have a renaissance in the country, which is workers getting together and saying, this is what we deserve and we're not going to take anything less than that. Um, and the tenant union uh, movement is, you know, less evolved than that right now, but we do need to start seeing, and we are seeing tenants get together and be mad and pool their resources, whether that's money, um, but more often that's, you know, you find someone who is really, really good at spreadsheets and they take a look and they collect some data and they're like, this is wrong. Um, and then you have the people who are willing to uh, put their neck out a little bit more. Um, and then you have the people who are great cooks and like all of that community um, starts to form, you know, a, a, a protection for the people that live together. Um, and it's no longer just a piece of property. It's no longer just a, a cell on a spreadsheet to a, to, you know, a property owner. It is a living, breathing community that's looking out for each other. So what our referendum did, it, it created a very, very, broad definition of here's a group of tenants that can represent um, their members um, or the, it represents the people, uh, the tenants that are in the area, the neighborhood, the building, the under the property manager, whatever it is um, in front of courts or in front of the rent board. Um, and, you know, we want to keep that broad because we don't know what a tenant union can be. We don't know what the potential is. I would love to see a Portland tenant union. You know, I think we're maybe a decade out from that, but things move fast. Um, and where it starts is people talking in their buildings and saying, hey, maybe nothing's wrong right now. Maybe our rent is fine. Maybe we love our landlord, but let's just call it, we'll make a little logo, maybe give ourselves a name and then file with the city. And now we have a mechanism to do that. And I think that's super exciting. You you mentioned the uh, <laughs> the hypothetical uh, great cook Frank who lives who lives in your apartment and let's say um, let's go ahead and if you don't mind carry out the the hypothetical for a little bit um, sure. so let's say Frank um, 
one day has a lasagna bake for his fellow tenants and and a, a good handful of them decide to join a tenants union with him to complain because they think they've had their let's say they think they've had their rent increased too high um to to higher than what the ordinance would allow um the landlord hears about this um, from maybe one of the tenants who didn't want to do it um what happens now what does the law say now if that landlord tries to just evict them all before it even gets anywhere um so part of our new referendum and or part of question c um and part of you know the existing law is that tenants are not allowed to or landlords are not allowed to retaliate against uh, landlords that are organizing a union um this it is so important if you're organizing a union first get some get your people together and you know keep it kind of low-key but like just talk and organize a little bit um maybe decide what you want to be called but then start forming a paper trail you know reach out to the landlord, reach out to the city um, to file officially, and then reach out to the, to the landlord um, and just notify them, hey, we're forming this. Um, this is, I, I, like, there is still an element of danger here because we have no cause evictions. Um, you know, if you get evicted, there is a chance that the court will say, well, no, it's because you left your window open or something like that. Um, for instance, Ethan Strimling, um, he is still a former mayor, former mayor uh, who was in the Trelawney building, um, also a co-founder of the Trelawney Tenant Union, is still in a lawsuit um, because he was evicted within you know weeks of us sending our first letter to our landlord, Jeffrey Rice. Um, and uh, our landlord is saying, well, it's because your window was open in May and our lease doesn't say that. And I told you that you needed to pay a $50 fine and you wanted to meet with me um, before, uh, before, you know, you would pay that. Uh, and that's being difficult. So you're, that's, that was a reason for being evicted. Uh, even though it is very, very clear, like it's very clear cause and effect. We sent this letter, all of a sudden this happens. Um, but you know, so, so I don't want to say, oh, if you form a tenant union, you're golden. You'll never be evicted. Um, but we have created these protections. We've created these routes where you can register with the city. And having your name on those documents um, is now a form of protection because um, landlords are going to have to think twice. And do I want to like deal with this? You know, uh, DSA is, uh, we are willing, we are, we are talking to tenants and we are, when we hear stories about you know this stuff being taken advantage of of tenants um, getting retaliated against for organizing, you know we have resources where we can say okay this is pretty clear cut and we need to take a stand on this one, and so it it changes the calculation. A landlord can't just say oh I'm going to cut off the head of this by getting rid of Frank, um, which you know is never the case anyway. That's always just going to make things you know. That is escalating. And when you escalate, you know, that's going to bring more tenants together. So with a referendum, you know, we are creating these, these, we are creating a framework for how can tenants actually protect themselves and create this paper trail um, to create these communities that are protecting themselves um, and benefiting, you know, the greater Portland community. Um, also, um, you 
pass changes to the 90-day notice um, of eviction, correct? Yeah. Um, so this was part of a, a number of, of just tweaks that we found um, between 2020 and 2022. Uh, you know, we were seeing all these these like loopholes and intentions and uh, things and the city's weird interpretations of things. Um, and we were like, okay, we need to clear this up. So one of the most important ones was this 90 day notice. Um, and uh, essentially what that was is currently at, or before this passed, um, at will tenants, which means tenants without a signed lease were required to have 90 days of notice, like if they were being evicted for, you know, for no cause, um, rather than like non-payment of rent or something like that. Um, so their tenants, they don't have a lease, so presumably they're renting month to month. And so in in the before this, a landlord could say, okay, 30 days you're out. Well, they, so at-will tenants were, strangely enough, better protected than tenants with leases. They would get 90 days. Tenants with leases would get 30 days. So what you could say, is the, tenant, the tenant's lease could be up, and then they would say, oh, you got 30 days to move out, which is unreal in this market you know all of a sudden your next month is shot because you need to find an apartment um, yeah, so once the lease is over you've got no protections right. if you were at least right um and that obviously didn't make any sense so we said everyone gets 90 days if your landlord wants you out earlier if they want you out one month earlier they pay you one month of rent if they want you out two months earlier they pay you two months of rent uh, you're going to get 30 days regardless but if you don't if you get less than that then you're going to get some money back. Um, some other really important things we did, um, like the best pitch, the best thing that that pitched well to voters was no more application fees. You don't have to pay, you know, 20 to 30 bucks every time you apply to an apartment because we are hearing stories of landlords that are sitting on properties and just raking in application fees from people that are desperate for housing. So we want to make sure that tenants are not being milked um, by landlords just because they're looking for a new property. So we wanted to get rid of application fees entirely. Um, and that's now the case. If you are renting in Portland, you cannot be charged an application fee. And if you are charged an application fee, you should reach out to the, the housing safety office because they will record that. And we are you know, independently keeping track of that, um, though we would like more oversight from the city. Um, uh, then the, the one of the other um, crucial pieces of this was um, making sure that application fees were limited to two months rent. You know, we're hearing from so many tenants um, or prospective tenants. Deposits. Deposits, yes, sorry. Um, so uh, basically making sure that deposits, you cannot get charged more than three years um, or three months of rent um, on a deposit because, you know, for let's say the mythical $800 apartment, um, you would have to pay first month, last month, and security deposit, um, which is what, 2400 that is um, un unattainable for a lot of people and is a huge barrier to living in the city. Um, you may be able to pay rent reliably, um, you know, for forever, but you can't cover that initial that initial huge amount of money. And so you cannot live in Portland. Uh, we limit that to two months um, and basically first month and security deposit. Um, and we're hoping that that's going to allow people to be able to move in um, to Portland um, and begin working here um, rather than, you know, being shut out because they can't overcome that initial investment.
I, I remember a time when it was more common for it to be a security deposit in the first month. And, um, and that became less and less the case over the years. And um, landlords would say it's because it, it, it was the economics of it that were driving it. I imagine you've heard plenty from landlords. Um, I am curious, what, what do you say to, especially a smaller landlord? Um, there's got to be landlords out there who are, whether it's an owner-occupied building or maybe they've just got a couple of buildings, um, um, as opposed to some of the larger ones who, who are renting hundreds, even sometimes, of units. Um, what about the smaller landlords who are worried that this will uh, make it harder for them to, to, to operate? Um, so landlords in America are guaranteed a return on investment. Um, you know, I am a social housing person. I believe that uh, housing is a human right. Um, so I don't love that, but it is a fact that you as a landlord, if you are if you own property and you want to rent it out to a tenant, you are guaranteed a return on investment. Um, and, you know, that is something is the consumer price index. That's how part of our rent calculations are uh, and create are, are calculated. You know, that is tied in. That is why landlords are allowed to raise rent. Um, landlords are certainly not required to raise rent. Um, and in fact, we have a mechanism that allows them to bank rent. So if they don't want to raise rent um, on, a, on a certain tenant, they're allowed to hold off that raise and maybe turn it on and maybe apply that on turnover or something like that. Um, but I think the most important part is we do not hear a lot from the tenants that either cannot live here or no longer live here um, because they are scrambling for housing. Um, it is such a precarious position to be in, to not know where you're going to live and to have a job that's in Portland and to have a car that may not be reliable um, or no car at all, and just be desperate for housing. Um, and it is imperative that our government um, be taking into account what is good for tenants. Um, you know, there is a lot of money to be made in the market, and I understand tax revaluations raise taxes, um, but at the end of the day, you know, this is an investment. Um, to be a landlord is an investment and it turns human beings in their homes into, you know, uh, a line in an Excel, Excel spreadsheet. Um, and, you know, I, I understand that that is, that is, it is work to, to balance those things. But at the end of the day, sometimes investments are more lucrative or not. Um, and, you know, we can't be, it can't be guaranteed that you are going to make a windfall. Um, especially when you need to be taking into account. These are people's homes. Um, people need to be able to afford to live here. So maybe we're cutting into, into smaller landlords' bottom lines a bit, um, but the data just simply doesn't bear that out on a broader scale. Um, and we need to be protecting tenants um, in Portland because it is, it is how our city, and it's how our society um, runs right now. I would love to be in a position where everyone can buy a house. I don't think we're ever gonna be there. And some people don't wanna buy houses, but for a lot of people, it's just, it is so beyond the pale to imagine, oh yeah, I'm gonna buy a house on the peninsula because you know, um, I won the lottery. Like, unless you have around a million dollars, you are you're kind of just out of luck. Um, so this, these are the things that we need to be considering. Um, who is actually benefiting here? Is, is it an impact on a bottom line? And is it an impact to someone's ability to be housed? 
um, in Portland and continue to work here and live here and enjoy the city. Um, and who is Portland for? So, if there are tenants listening to this podcast who um, maybe are thinking of forming a tenants union, uh, what's your advice to them? Is there anyone you would uh, or any um, organization you'd recommend they reach out to? Um, any thoughts on 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 a, on what they would uh, consider as a next step? For sure. Um, the first step is talk to your neighbors. If you you need to have other people there to support you. Um, you, a tenant union cannot be one person. It needs to be a group of people that are working together because um, this is not paid work. This is something that you will burn out on um, unless you have support of even just another person, but one or two other neighbors is going to make all the difference in the world and you don't have to be best friends with them um but you're essentially becoming you know comrades and that word has become loaded i guess but uh to me the word comrade does not mean that you're friends with someone it's something between like a friend and a co-worker it's people who are united in a cause um, and they're fighting for the same thing and um that's something that we need to rebuild again. Um, this, you know, the Cold War did a number on uh, on uh, that sense of coming together and, and fighting for, uh, you know, something that can be construed as political. Um, but we need to be rebuilding that. Um, so talk to your neighbors, schedule a meeting, make it a half hour and just say, hey, what do we want to call ourselves? Um, a, a huge part of this is create a way for you to communicate with your neighbors. Um, in the Trilliant building, we created a Discord server. This can be a chat, you know, depending on the size of your building, uh, just like a, a text chat, you know, um, a signal chat, a bulletin board in a shared common space where you post notes. Um, just make sure that you can communicate with your neighbors and, you know, just talk about whatever's going on. Maybe the Wi-Fi cut out. Um, maybe you need someone to watch your cat. Um, but creating that, that, that communication, um, method is, is so crucial just to like keeping that alive um keeping that spirit of you know this is our community that this is how we talk to each other this is how we can get in touch easily um once you do that um you know you can always reach out to dsa um comms at um, maindsa.org um or like our instagram or twitter accounts um and you know i love to talk to people who are interested in organizing um, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's not, um, you know, you're not going to create a utopia. And if you want to win things, then it is going to be some work, right? It is going to be um, some sometimes administrative work. It's going to be sending some emails. It's going to be talking with, you know, people um, either in like DSA or, or other organizations. Um, and it's going to be knocking doors. Uh, people. You don't necessarily need to knock doors, but you need someone who is willing to knock doors and to broach that conversation and say, hey, we're having a meeting. We've got a bunch of lasagna. We'd love to come. We'd love you to come over um, and talk about, you know, what we want as, as neighbors um, in this building. Some people are going to be like, that's too weird. A lot of people are going to be like, that sounds lovely. I would love to know the people that live in my building. Um, and that's really it. It just takes a couple steps of, I wanna to talk to people who I live around and I'm going to talk about things that are, I'm going to talk about us being organized. Um, and those are conversations that I love to, I love to have and I love to like help people have. So, and we have a lot of organizers in DSA who, who also are, are 
eager to like spread that um, spread just like basic tactics um, of having those conversations and some touchstones to make sure that you you know you don't feel like you're gonna die every time you you know knock on your neighbor's door uh, but it feels like an opportunity well Wes Pelletier thank you so much for uh, joining us at the West End News podcast today um, and uh, sharing your uh, your your campaign experiences with us um we really appreciate your time and i'm sure we'll be hearing more from you uh in the the coming months we'll, we'll see thank you so much uh, i'm so excited for this podcast um this is you know the, the portland podcast scene has been lacking and uh, this, this is exciting the west end news podcast is distributed by the west end news portland maine's free community news resource since 2001 the West End News Podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by Tony Zelli. Music is by Aaron Zelli. Find our podcast at thewestendnews.com. Thank you for listening to Local Independent Media. The West End News Podcast.